0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It is Tuesday, April 6th. 2021, and uh, all of us are still absorbing much of what happened during the uh, 40 days of the Georgia legislature uh, just ended last week. And, of course, the most contentious and uh, talked-about uh, bill passed into law by Governor Kemp being the uh, 98-page rewrite of the state's election laws. Um, It's become a fierce battle between Republicans and Democrats as they interpret the law completely differently. It's happening here in Georgia. It's happening in Washington just yesterday. uh, the Senate Republican uh, minority leader Mitch McConnell gave a brush back to the corporations like Microsoft, uh, Delta Airlines, and others who have um, Coca-Cola, for that matter, who have been highly critical of the law that Georgia passed. Of course, the, and we know Major League Baseball pulled the All-Star game out of uh, Atlanta because of the law. And McConnell is saying there are going to be consequences to corporations that continue to condemn the law, although we have no idea exactly what those consequences might look like. But for, from our point of view, certainly from my point of view personally at least, Um, I'm I'm finding that uh, it's hard to wrap your arms around exactly what to make of the different arguments, partisan arguments back and forth about what this law actually does. And so we've decided on the show today to bring in a really strong panel of analysts to look at the law. We're not going to go through every one of the 98 pages, but we're going to take on some of the most contentious measures and explain them uh, the best we can so that you have a clearer understanding of uh, what exactly is happening with the new law. To do that, uh, we have as our regular uh, uh, AJC partner on the show today, uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution senior reporter, Tamar Hallerman. Hi, Tamar. Thanks for being here, as usual.
0: Hey, Bill. Cannot wait to dive in.
1: Um, I, I want you have to be on your best behavior today because, of course, your boss... Is joining us today as well. Kevin Riley is here, and we're very glad he could be. Uh, Kevin, thanks for changing days where we usually see you on Thursdays. Um, you look, you know, you look pretty good for a Tuesday morning.
2: Well, it's still early in the week uh, here, at Bill, so I haven't uh, been beaten up too much. But I'm glad to join uh, tomorrow who, you know, normally is what we call now in our newsroom our war correspondent, our water war correspondent. She does brought a lot of insight to that issue for our readers, so it's good to be on with her.
1: Yeah, um, you know, at some point we should probably talk about that with you tomorrow, but today we're talking the election law. We're also joined today by uh, Democratic State Representative Terry Anulowitz, from, uh, who represents constituency up in Smyrna. Uh Terry, you have been very outspoken, uh, very vocal. New York Times actually quoted, I think, a tweet that you sent out in, in response to the law. So I'm glad you're here today. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. Yeah, there is a baseball stadium in my district that has been in the news lately.
1: Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's one of the busy. reasons it's really good to uh, have you here to uh, weigh Thank in so on much. that. And uh, we're very happy to be joined by Republican political consultant, and the president of the Engaged Futures Group, Leo Smith's uh, new business, which deals with, I think, uh, education matters, bringing people together around issues where he thinks they can, we can find some commonality, work together more closely. Leo, thank you too for being here today.
4: Thank you, and it's good to see my uh, representative. And uh, as I am only 20 minute walk from the Braves stadium and looking forward to the Cubs Braves game with my son coming up. So my son was very disappointed on this, this all-star uh, issue.
1: He's not alone. Let's face it. All right, let's dig, <laughs> let's dig in. And, and what I'd like to do is really, as I said, walk through uh, many of the aspects of this new law and what they really do. So tomorrow, let me start uh, with you, if I may. Um, absentee balloting has been a big issue in terms of how the law has changed <clears throat> excuse me uh, let's start with the fact that voters are now going to have less time to request absentee ballots that's been a matter of great controversy controversy you want to help us uh, uh, look at that uh, particular part of the law
0: yeah so it cuts in half um, the period for requesting an absentee ballot before you had almost six months to do it, and now uh, before an election, and now it's getting cut down to less than three um, months. And so you have a lot of civil rights groups, voting rights groups that are very concerned. It's going to really cut down on the number of people who are seeking absentee ballots, and especially when you consider the fact that in the last um, the last presidential election, about a quarter of the electorate ended up voting absentee. Um, you know, it doesn't limit, people can still request them, but it, with the shorter time frame, people are concerned that it'll be much tougher for, for folks who uh, are not necessarily on top of the ball.
1: Leo, a lot of the efforts uh, that were uh, made about absentee voting by Republicans in the legislature uh, were focused on um, on the fact that 1.3 million Georgians cast absentee ballots in the uh, election cycle last November, and um, and the Republicans are concerned that the deluge of absentee votes that came in um, may have created, it, made it more difficult for county election offices to count those ballots to assure that they were properly uh, uh, filed, the signatures were right. Um, but, but so, so th- this effort to shorten the period of time that people can send in absentee ballots, um, Seems it, it, from a Republican point of view, you'd say it's aimed at trying to make the process run more smoothly. But I'm not sure it does that.
4: Well, it certainly is. Uh, I, I think a fact that administratively is more difficult to deal with that number of absentee ballots as opposed to the others. Um, you know, we're looking at Colorado, which is, you know, 6 percent of its voting Is done in person. They've been dealing with that for quite a while. But we had to deal with that because of the executive, the emergency order related to uh, COVID-19 is why we had such an increase. And it was something that was cumbersome and difficult. And it does create more opportunities for uh, having uh, breaks in integrity. So it is a real issue that it needs to be addressed. The timing of the issue, of course, is suspect. and I'm sure we're going to talk more about that But one of the things I find also interesting is just that, you know, these studies that are coming out showing that it's not necessarily uh, restrictions on early voting or absentee ballots that actually are challenging for for voters. And so that's going to be interesting to to sort of have more discourse on that as well as it relates to political strategy.
1: Terry, under the previous law, um, voters had 180 days To uh, uh, file an absentee ballot in an election, Um, now it's 78 days, or and and also on the other end, there's 11. You have to get your ballot in in, uh, a request in 11 days before an election, as opposed to like the Friday before the election. It 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 strikes me that uh, you can make an argument that all of this is going to make it harder for people to vote absentee. And we should say that of those 1.3 million Georgians who voted absentee in November, uh, 65% of them voted for Joe Biden, uh, 34% for Trump. And
3: I think that one of the parts of... uh... One of the things in this part of the bill that is the most concerning to me is that 11 days. I think that that is what is going to blindside the most people who typically vote absentee, regardless of the reason that they vote absentee. I think that is going to – in the various iterations of the different bills that went through the House and the Senate that ultimately culminated in Senate Bill 202 – there were different ranges for what that cutoff is going to be. You know, at one point, I think it was seven days. At one point, it was 14 days. It ended up being 11 days. And I still think that that is really not – I think it's too short. And one of the things that, that Leo mentioned was that, you know, how easy it was to vote absentee, open, it up for, open itself up for opportunities of fraud. I want to point out again, as I know many folks have pointed out, there wasn't any fraud with the absentee voting in Georgia. You know, the Cobb County, where Leo and I both live, had a signature audit. There wasn't any fraud with the absentee voting. So I think it's important to note that while we had an unprecedented volume of absentee voting in Georgia in 2020, and again with the runoff in 2021, there was no fraud with any of that, any of that significant increase in absentee by mail voting.
1: Uh, Kevin, let me make sure that I've stated this clearly before I turn it over to you. Um, these uh, these time windows are based on absentee ballot requests. The time of uh, that you have to request a ballot down from uh, six months to 78 days, and no later than 11 days before an election. Those are for ballot requests. But go ahead, Kevin. Well, I think, Biller,
2: here's a key number I'm going to throw out there, and I, this conversation is is tough because there are a lot of numbers, dates, all this kind of stuff. But let me give you one, and it goes back to the poll. That we at the AJC, AJC took back in January, okay. And in answer to this question, and I think this 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 bit of information explains an awful lot of what happened. The question was: Are you more concerned about limits on voting options or the potential for ineligible voters to cast ballots? Eighty. Three percent of Republicans in our poll said they were more concerned about the potential for ineligible voters. That's why the legislature did what it did, because for months, these Republican voters had been hearing that the election was a fraud, that these things were ineligible people voted. All these things were terrible. And that's what they were playing to. And that's why these things happen. It's just a belief among so many people that this is where the Republican legislature went.
0: And you, you know, you talk to Republicans and you ask them about provisions like this, and they say that cutting it down, you know, only accepting it, you know, 11 days before an election, that, that leaves more time or, or that, that ensures that more people who do send it in will get accepted. It's, you know, I think they talk a lot about people who, who might file or mail in their absentee ballot requests too late, and so they, they can't vote in time. Um, Obviously, Democrats don't agree with that. Um, But it's also worth considering, um, you know, this is a lot different from what the original bill was going to do. There was talk about completely getting rid of um, no excuse absentee voting. So it's also worth saying this is, um, you know, very watered down compared to what it was.
1: Um, uh, 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 Terry, uh, uh, Tamara makes a good point. I think one of the things that Republicans are still under a cloud over and one of the things that's contributed to uh, their uh, being um, particularly under attack is that they were contemplating much more draconian measures like ending no excuse absentee voting, like ending Sunday voting, uh, souls to the polls uh, voting. And, And so that cuts both ways. On one hand, Republicans can say, well, we didn't take those extreme measures. Look, we really are preserving important opportunities for people to vote. On the other hand, it's put them under a cloud from those who heard about those draconian measures and aren't sure whether they were in the final bill or not.
3: No, I think that that's a really good point. And one of the problems, and I think one of the reasons there has been so much confusion running all the way up the line to the president of the United States is because there really was not a very transparent process with how this bill with how Senate Bill two oh two eventually came to be. Bills were being dropped so quickly, amendments were being introduced so quickly. There were committee meetings and the legislative computer system, you of what we used to put the bills online so that every member of the public can access this legislation could not keep up. And so you had a lot of people, a lot of really smart, really well informed people who sincerely believed they were talking about the most recent version of the bill when they actually weren't but they were actually looking at the most recent version of the bill that was available to the public and so i think that we really need to to make sure people know that people who are saying things like people who are saying that you know there was that it took away no excuse absentee voting it's not that they're ignorant it's not that they didn't know it's that this process really had very little transparency because it was happening so quickly and you know, I've had Republican colleagues tell me, you guys should be happy. We didn't take away no excuse absentee voting. That's, that's, that's a bit of a, a false expectation of people. You know, that's I, – I just I, – I really have a problem with that because it doesn't mean that the bill still isn't onerous. Is it less onerous than it had been initially introduced? Yes. Is it still onerous? Yes.
1: All right. So, um, Leo, let's move on to another point. But as we do, uh, let's make this uh, 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 point uh, – Is it, should we say, Leo, that by reducing the amount of time that a Georgian can apply for an absentee ballot, this law uh, very well might reduce the number of people who will vote by mail?
4: Well, it might. Uh, It certainly is, I mean, because there's less time to do it. But I just believe that, uh, you know, the powers that be that run elections that organize as 501C3 and 4 organizations supporting civic engagement will do, um, you know, as some of the, again, the Stanford study that was in the New York Times suggested that they'll double up their efforts. They will make an effort to make sure that they can turn out their people during that time span and using the rules that, that are available. And uh, yes, uh, I don't like seeing uh, the possibility for engaging citizens short. I don't like that, but um, I also think that making the administrative process less costly to the counties, to uh, uh, the state and uh, Secretary of State's office is an important consideration while also increasing access um, and making sure that folks can engage. And so I'm concerned more about things that suppress engagement than I am about uh, things that you know are time limitations.
1: Mark, close us out on this point.
0: I just want to piggyback off what Leo said. And there's so much we we don't know yet. Um, And there's so much rhetoric. And it's kind of hard. You know, it's hard for me as a journalist who's pretty well versed in this. I can't imagine for a member of the public in terms of how severe a lot of these provisions actually are. Um, There could be a surge in turnout on either side because people are so angry or so pleased about this law. But I think what's worth noting is that in a close election, like what we saw in November 2020, where Biden won Georgia by less than 12,000 votes, a lot of these provisions could make a difference. It may not be as sweeping as what the two sides are saying one way or another, but in a close election, every, each and every one of these provisions could make a difference.
1: Kevin? Well, yeah, I, I
2: think Tamar makes a great point, and, and Terry and Leo as well. Here's the thing. I think we should be very cautious of going back to uh, Terry's point about well, we could have el- entirely eliminated absentee uh, voting. Um, that you know, whataboutism has become such a huge part of our political mm-hmm. culture on both sides of the aisle. You couldn't get away with that with your mom, your high school teacher, or your college <laughs> professor. you the point. you about whether we should have absentee valid, uh, voting and how it should work and how it best engages citizens. Don't say, well, it could have been this or it should have been that. Because I do think that is part, uh, you know, as Tamara's pointing out, why the public's so confused. Because it's become endless aboutism instead of, this is what the bill says, and this is what people think may happen on either side.
1: Okay. Um, let's move on to other aspects of the law. Um, ID requirements for absentee ballots was the focus of an enormous amount of attention uh, even back during the 2020 election uh, cycle, matching signatures, which is, of course, how, in fact, absentee ballots were verified uh, in Georgia by law, that you, had, you signed your absentee ballot, it was matched to a signature on file, and uh, Republicans believed that uh, there was uh, t- too much subjectivity in uh, – verifying those signatures, although, again, an audit of absentee ballots showed absolutely no problems with this. And so now, Tamar, uh, one of the most, uh, I think, uh, uh, controversial measures in the new law is going to require that uh, voters provide a driver's license number or an equivalent uh, uh, state-issued identification uh, number and the problem is we know that there are more than 200,000 people in Georgia who don't have one of those forms, either of those forms of identity. And in a state where the margins of victory are so slim, in any state, 200,000 people who might not uh, have the, have the uh, uh, wherewithal to vote absentee, that's, that's a huge uh, uh, deciding factor.
0: Yeah, this is something that's actually pretty popular. In, in our AJC poll that we did in January, the majority of the public said they did support increased uh, voter ID laws when it comes to election administrations. It's worth noting that in other states where we did see more stringent voter ID, that did lead to um, you know, less voting among people of color. You talk to Republicans, they mentioned we're making IDs free. Um, for whoever seeks it out. You talk to uh, voting rights groups and they say, you know, but it's this bill is not including money for transportation to get a lot of people um, to the DMV. It's not, um, you know, some people can't take the time off of work, especially nine to five during business hours in order to go and get one. Um, so a lot of obviously contentious debate over this provision. And, uh, you know, there, there's also a pitfall for voters in that if they don't follow... A lot of these new steps like printing their date of birth, um, social security numbers, that sort of thing, uh, their ballots could be tossed out.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, has anyone been to renew their driver's license or tried to get one when they move in from out of state and seen what that's like? I mean, a lot of people can't take all that time or put their hands on that paperwork as easily as some of us can. And Tamara's right. I mean, it wasn't just a majority of people believed in this ID requirement. It was nearly three-quarters of people in our poll, and more importantly, 92 percent of Republicans believe we should we should do the photo id thing and 56% of democrats so this is while it's controversial for those who dig into it for average people i think it makes sense hey i got to show an id for almost anything i do now and um so it doesn't seem unusual i'd have to do that for voting
1: leo
4: yeah i'm, I'm recalling a washington post office um, article from a bucknell study back in 2006 and through 2014 um, that points out one of the reasons why we see a high acceptance of voter ID um, laws when it comes to um, polling. The uh, Black American impact on that is pretty, pretty significant. Um, the studies show that it's actually, we, we say people of color. Um, it impacts people of color, but actually it doesn't impact Black Americans, according to these studies at Bucknell and, and others. Um, it is actually impacting Hispanic voters pretty significantly, and that's where the impact is. And so that's why when um, opinion polling happens, happens, we don't see that people are um, negative about voter ID. The other thing with civil rights leaders, I think they're more concerned about um, the impact that I've met with the civil rights leaders are concerned about people sharing personal identification information and, you know, kind of risking themselves to, um, you know, a pressure related to their identity. I think that's some concern that I heard leading up to the passing of the bill. But voter ID overall, most Black American civil rights leaders aren't as
3: concerned about. Terry, I think one of the one of the things that concerns me with this is a lot of the reason. People choose to vote absentee are the very same reasons. It's going to be hard for them to get one of these IDs. You know, if they are if they are not very mobile, if they are not in a position where it's easy for them to get to one of these, you know, to their to their county driver service offices. You know, I'm guessing in a lot of these rural counties, they probably won't have the, as many as much access to the state ID. You know, the mobile ID places. Uh, th- I think that's going to be a problem, and, and I and I think that. There's a barrier to entry, so if you don't have a driver's license, if you don't have a state ID, you can affix a copy of certain different things, you know, a, a mortgage, a lease, a utility bill with your name in it, but you still have to find a way to copy that or scan that. You still have to find a way to upload that with your electronic application because the applications aren't going to be mailed anymore. I mean, there it, it's a significant barrier to, barrier to entry with the technology that is required to do this if you don't have one of those state-issued state ID numbers, and like Bill said, the numbers of this are high enough to swing an election. You know, we have slim so, margins here in Georgia.
1: I, I apologize you know, for Bill, uh, interrupting.
3: No.
4: Bill, you know, and, and I think what Terry mentions is all important stuff. I mean, we want engagement. And engagement can happen in a number of ways. Engagement also means that people have more affinity mm-hmm. and more ownership of the election process. So. What does that mean? So that means the legal women voters and other voting organizations, the New Georgia Project, they may change their engagement to allow um, for the processing of free IDs. And so more engagement is always a good thing. So I'm not so sure that this will have a negative impact as long as the citizen starts to engage more in a way that helps people with those problems like printers and getting that free ID that's available.
1: You know, but, but see, to me, Terry, what, I, I understand what Leo is saying for people to take ownership over the, uh, uh, over the election process. If you're going to be a voter, you need to take ownership. But, but that suggests that um, it's fine to put some barriers up that people have to overcome to, to live up to their responsibility to vote.
3: That is exactly right, and that, that's what I'm hearing in, with that sentiment. It, it, the right to vote doesn't extend to only, only the people for whom it is easy for them to vote. The right to vote extends to any eligible voter, and, and it's not any eligible voter, especially those who have a scanner. It's not any eligible voter, especially those who it's easy for them to get one of these state IDs. The right to vote extends to any eligible voter, and, and I don't think that convenience or their desire or drive to any of their motivation to find a way to vote, that shouldn't be part of this conversation. And it's very troubling that it okay. is.
1: Okay. As, as we talk about the new requirements for people to uh, prove their identity for absentee ballots, I will say that any number of, uh, of news organizations, including the New York times uh, have said that they believe that that requirement, whether it's a good one or not, will lead to a lower number of few, fewer people voting absentee, and those people who would tend not to vote are more likely to be minority voters, Democratic voters. Kevin, before we get to a break, I want to take up one more aspect of this law that's caused a lot of uh, uh, controversy, and that's the issue of drop boxes. Kevin, the um, Republicans would say that They have, for the first time, codified in state law the requirement that there be drop boxes. Drop boxes for people who want to send their absentee uh, ballots. Put them in uh, to a drop box. They take pride in that. At the same time, they have limited the number of drop boxes uh, to, I think, it's one for every 100,000 people. Tamara or or um, Terry might have, you know, correct me if I'm wrong about that. But, but. They've limited the number. They have insisted that those drop boxes be inside early voting locations, which means they're only accessible during voting hour, early voting hours, and that they have a security person standing there to watch it. That's caused a lot of concern among uh, many people who uh, f- feel that's going to make it harder for folks to return their absentee ballots.
2: Yeah. And as someone who dropped off his absentee ballot at a drop box near Georgia State or at Georgia State in off hours, I can definitely understand because I just, you know, the, the when I got my absentee ballot in the mail, when I could fill it out, when I could find time to get it somewhere, wasn't a, ideal timing for me. So even as someone who has plenty of access and All the things I need to vote and have and someone who had always voted early, except, you know, because the pandemic changed things, I did instead voted absentee. I I don't understand that the whole world uses drop boxes for FedEx or UPS, all these things. And I think this is sort of a really made up concern. I'm interested to see what others think. but
1: Terry?
3: I think that the changes to drop boxes in this legislation were put in there specifically to make voting less convenient. So when drop boxes were introduced during the pandemic, and yes, I read the bill, I understand that they weren't codified until Senate Bill 202, but they were allowed under the emergency use rules that were set forth by the State Board of Elections, which, by the way, will no longer be controlled by or chaired by the Secretary of State. But we'll get to that later. I'm sure. The When when drop boxes were introduced, I thought to myself, man, it is going to be real hard to unring this bell. I mean, the convenience was just unparalleled. And as Kevin mentioned, drop boxes are safe. As has been mentioned many times, including in the responses to the Kraken lawsuits filed by the Trump campaign, there was no fraud associated at all with drop boxes. So we know they're safe. We know they're convenient. And we know that Senate Bill 202 makes them less convenient. So, Dropboxes have to be inside. That's a problem. Like, I remember when I dropped off my ballot, I scooted up to the dropbox in front of the Cobb County Senior, Senior Center near my house, dropped it off, waved to the security camera because they were all required to be surveilled 24 hours a day, and went on my merry way. That's no longer an option. And one of the, some of the people for whom dropboxes are the most convenient, they're going to be limited because if, you're, if, if the polling place, for example, is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. as allowed under Senate Bill 202, if you're a teacher – if you are a 9-to-5 worker at a bank, there are all, all segments of people in the population who aren't going to be able to go inside one of these locations to drop off their ballot. And I think this is the provision that when it comes down to it and we're voting in the next election, a lot of people from both parties are going to be really annoyed that they no longer have this option.
1: Leo, I've got to get to a break, but let me give you a quick chance to uh, respond.
4: This is one of the signal to noise problems that the Republicans have based on how they were trying to message to their base. The fact is is that drop boxes are not standard voting procedure in Georgia. They were not available before June 9 primaries and if, and so we should have been messaging as Republicans that we never had them available. They're not part of the election process.
1: Okay, the question is why should we feel a drop box needs more security than the US P.S. mailbox that people can legally put their ballot into. And I think that's a question that has not been answered by, by anyone, Republican or Democrat. Let's get to our first break of the show. We'll be back with more in a moment.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: Leo Smith, Representative Terry uh, Nolowicz, Tamar Hellerman, Kevin Riley all join me for today's show. Uh, We're kind of walking through some of the major points of the election law, hoping uh, we can give some clarification uh, to what these uh, measures do, uh, given that they are being interpreted entirely differently by the partisans involved in this uh, fight. Um, uh, uh, Tamara, so we talked about some of the major things involved in absentee voting, so I'd like to go to in-person voting, um, and I think one of the issues that's very confusing to a lot of people is early voting. Republicans say that one of the best things that they did was they expanded early voting, uh, to, uh, many parts of the state, to all parts of the state, uh, really, um, but the fact of the matter is that it, it is likely that they may have expanded early voting, get to, and you'll correct me if I don't have this right, they, that rural communities may benefit from expanded early voting, but metro areas have already had the kind of additional uh, days and hours of voting that Republicans uh, uh, put into this measure, and in fact, because they may limit the hours that voting is available, uh, this doesn't really give many Georgians, especially in metro, more opportunity to vote. Is that fair, fairly said?
0: Yeah, it seems like it's kind of a washer. It at least sort of depends where you are, right? In in rural Georgia, where there are fewer polling places, uh, where, where they tend to be shorter staffed, this requires them to add a second day of early voting on a Saturday. Um, as you mentioned, this is something that was more common across metro Atlanta. And because it does limit um, how long early voting can take place. Uh, it, it can only be between 7 AM and 7 PM. That could create more of a log jam in metro Atlanta. Um, it requires early voting to be held between 9 and 5, which, as we talked about earlier, might be harder for working people who are you know, on the clock and, and can't seem to slip away. Uh, but you do see Republicans championing, hey, we've enshrined a second day of Saturday voting early, uh, you know, for early voting. This is a good thing. They didn't get rid of souls to the polls, which was something that um, was obviously got a ton of press as the bill was being debated. Um, so it really depends who you're talking to and where we're talking about.
1: So Terry, l- let's be clear because this is very confusing. The law, in fact, uh, and Tamar alluded to this, requires counties to hold early voting during weekday working hours, nine a.m. to five p.m., as opposed to seven a.m. to seven p.m. Now, that it, it also offers an option that that a county can have hours from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. but for I think for the first time Terry uh, counties can be protected if they choose to have voting early voting only between 9 and 5 when a lot of people are at work.
3: That is absolutely right. And I think that that's something we'll probably that that's an option we'll see taken probably in a lot of the rural counties especially you know we heard from a lot of different boards of elections folks from across the state in the testimony for the various versions that that became this bill. And they already are having a hard time, you know, finding poll workers, finding having the extended voting hours. So I think a lot of election officials really have welcomed this, but I and I think they will take advantage of just being able to have it nine to five. And if you are a shift worker, if you're someone who works from you know, from nine to five most days, voting is gonna be next to impossible for you. Early okay, voting. Leo, that is. The, and and absentee is a lot harder.
1: But Leo, the counties do have the option. It's not as if they're precluded from uh, extending hours beyond much what most people's workday hours are?
4: Well, without a doubt, during the last election cycle, we did see some county administrators, and um, in, in, even in some small counties, have problems uh, with leadership. And that is going to put a lot of onus on them for leadership at the county level. I'm concerned about that, as well as the budgetary impact of them having to make uh, arrangements if they were too, because there's also some, some effort to reduce the amount of private funding, private organization, independent expenditure group funding to assist with elections, and that's a double concern.
1: Um, all right, Kevin, um, I want to uh, talk about another aspect of this law, and that's the fact that it it forbids third-party funding for a local election board. And, and what that means, of course, is that that – Many counties that don't have the funds they need to uh, uh, staff up for what they expect to be a high turnout election uh, n- need to find a source of money. And there have been some nonprofit organizations that have stepped into Georgia and other states and given them the, uh, uh, the funds they need. Under the new law, um, if, uh, if the smaller counties are going to have to expand their early voting uh, hours uh, and days... They're going to need more staff, and yet the legislature says that except under very rare circumstances, uh, you can't go to third party for funding.
2: Yeah, and I think more accurately, uh, or to, in addition to that, Bill, uh, the the state elections board is going to be the place where you could ask for money if you need it. In other words, if people want to give money, they give it there, and the a county applies. Um, I don't know. I, I think I, I think this one, um, you know, can make some sense, but I'm sorry. But I mean, I, to me, it's sort of this conspiracy theory part of the law. Right. That somehow these organizations, because they gave money to a county to help them manage elections or or were willing to um, provide volunteers or something, that somehow they found a way to manipulate the results. Uh, and uh I mean I I think we could all see this coming from 100 miles away from the very beginning and I would not say it's the single most important thing or troubling thing but it to me it gives a nod to it just gives a nod to conspiracy theories which is a shame
1: well, to the extent, Terry, that some of what this law does is to create unfunded mandates for local election offices, getting help from a, somebody like a Mark Zuckerberg. And that's there you go. There's the problem. Mark Zuckerberg, right. part of the evil conspiracy, social media conspiracy against Republicans.
3: That's right. It's Zuckerberg. It's Soros. It's all of the masterminds who are trying to, you know, get rid of Republicans in the United States, which we know is not happening Um Leo mentioned the budgetary impact of a lot of the things that counties are being made to do, and it's baffling that Republicans who, in the past, would want third parties to step up. They would want you know nonprofits to, to step in so that the government wouldn't have to pay for all these things. Now, these, these grants are available, and the counties can't take them. And I, I will tell you, I, I know that there are Republican counties and Democratic counties they don't care which organization is sending them the money. They just need the funds to help run their voting operations. And, you know, when you talk about how they can go to the State Board of Elections, because there'll be all this money, I guess, will be put into a kitty that the State Board of Elections will then be able to hand out, if they, cho- if they so choose, to these different counties, who is going to be running the State Board of Elections now?
1: All right. I want to I want to Leo, go ahead, weigh in real quick.
3: You
4: know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, a Republican, also sent money to South Georgia County to facilitate to Savannah, I believe. Uh, so so that area. But, yeah, I mean, Republicans are limiting themselves also. I mean, and then you know, Kelly Leffler has set up this this uh, voter engagement effort, and I'm sure she will probably have money to, to offer to uh, assist as well. So um, we're, we're going to be limiting our, her efforts as well.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. And when we come back, let's look at uh, one aspect of this law, which has many people uh, wondering who, in fact, is going to run elections in counties across the state. Uh, We'll do that after these messages. Tamara Hellerman, I really don't think I'm expressing a Bias when I say that a big chunk of this law is a power grab by Republicans who now control the legislature. Now, it if it becomes a a Democratic legislature, it's Democrats who will benefit uh, from this. But right now, uh, one of the couple of the aspects, the legislature has more control now over the state election board. Uh, They will be able, they're creating a new chair of the election board. It won't be the secretary of state. That's a, you know, that's a slap on the knuckles to Brad Raffensperger, of course. Um, The secretary of state is removed as a voting member of the state election board. And the GOP uh, legislature is empowered to suspend county election officials. All of that creates a situation in which the state has enormous power uh, influence the outcomes of and the ways in which elections unfold across the state yes
0: to me it's a giant middle finger to brad raffensperger and the way that he uh, oversaw the elections in 2020 it bars the secretary of state from sending out uh, mass absentee ballot request forms which is something of course brad raffensperger did um, in the middle of the pandemic uh, last spring it obviously takes him away as uh, he's no longer chairman of the state elections board. He's kind of an ex-officio member now who, who won't really have a ton of power. Um, so we knew Brad Raffensperger was not popular with the state GOP uh, during and after the elections, but this certainly codifies just how unpopular he is and just how hard it's going to be for him when he runs for reelection next year. He clearly does not okay, have friends Kevin, in the legislature right now.
1: <laughs> okay, but, but Kevin, the Fulton County Election Board doesn't have many friends in the Republican-controlled legislature either, and they've been under fire for a long time for problems with running elections. The door is open for, Repub- for, for the Republicans who control the legislature to come in and take over a Fulton County election election in ways that um, I think Democrats and some would be highly suspicious of.
2: Yeah, you know, let me just go back to Raffensperger for a minute. Uh, I actually, I believe that when the history of this era is written, Raffensperger will be one of George's heroes. And I, I think that might well, shocks some people because I think he's probably going to lose this election now. But at a moment in time that called for just certain things to happen for all of – I mean, he's not a flawless person, obviously not a flawless politician. He seemed to do a lot of the right things. And then I think the legislature went after him because um, the, the leaders in the legislature certainly reserve their, their prerogatives uh, of power and to legislate and to control things that happen in the state. All that said, the the reading of the bill is confusing, but if you believe that the Republicans are after control, there's a way to put this piece together with that piece, with this piece, and say, gosh, they might find a way to invalidate results or refuse to accept results. Um, The one aside I will make, though, Bill, is that somewhere deep in these 98 pages, um, there's a thing that requires the counting to keep going until it's finished, and I love that part because – there was nothing crazier than during the last election that the entire nation is on the edge of its seat. Everyone's staying up late to watch cable news, and then someone comes out and asks, well, the workers have gone home. It's been a long day. We'll start again in the morning. I mean, who gets away with that in, in, in their job? And so it's a, it's a strange thing, but uh, I do think there will be so much scrutiny and so many eyes on this that um, it will either change or the terrible things that people fear probably won't happen.
3: I think, that this, this is, I think that this part of the bill, this part removing the Secretary of State from the he- chair of the state elections boards is absolutely retribution to Raffensperger. And I think that no matter what the policy is, good policy is not founded in retribution. Retribution does not give us what long-term we need to move Georgia forward. It doesn't give us what we need long-term to make sure democracy is something that's available to every eligible voter in Georgia. And I think that Doing this, is like Kevin said, you're putting piece and piece and piece together. Well, the other piece we have to put into this, because it's the the inevitable piece, is reapportionment and the redistricting process that's going to happen later on this year and how the Republicans are going to do that to even further cement their majority in the General Assembly, even if they will never have the majority for the next few years statewide. And I think that is something that we need to be very careful of when we're talking about this bill also.
4: Liam? Yeah, this this to me as a conservative, this is uh just uh government overreach. Uh just uh, uh two point oh right? I would catch you wanna say here. It is a, a, it is a slapping in the hand of Brad Ratensberger who demonstrated leadership and, and let's not forget that uh Brad Ratensberger actually proposed a Uh, A specific where we see problems in county, a a bill to allow the Secretary of State's office to walk alongside and fix those problems, just like Governor Deal did with the fix the broken schools issue. And so we have addressed this um, from a leadership perspective.
3: And now that Arnold Schwarzenegger has entered the chat, I think it's important to note that Schwarzenegger, following the, the runoff, actually presented Raffensperger via Zoom with his Democracy Action Hero Award.
1: Yeah, I think, though, that it. it, I think I I can guarantee you there are listeners to this show who are going to say, yes, we applaud the way Raffensperger pushed back against Donald Trump. But who are going to say, on the other hand, he was supportive of much of what's happened with this election law. And there are many people who feel uncomfortable that he's reversed. He seems to have gone a different direction in terms of the election law.
3: Yeah, I don't um, think
1: he, te- Yeah, he didn't testify against this bill, that's for sure. Okay, um, Tamar, it, here's, there's been attention paid to the fact that we're now going to have quicker runoff elections. Uh, I think it's now a four-week period. Um, I can imagine that Democrats would be unhappy about that because I'm assuming there are many people who think that what gave John Ossoff and uh, Raphael Warnock the opportunity to beat their Republican opponents was a much longer runoff period in which they could make their case, raise a ton of dough, and move forward. But here's, here's my question. I'm, I'm old school here in Georgia. I remember when our runoff period was three weeks, and there were never complaints about three-week runoffs. In fact, the party seemed to think that was appropriate because they didn't want these long, drawn-out runoff, runoff periods.
0: And I wrote a historical story um, back in early January before our our runoffs this time about how nobody actually likes these runoffs. They're exhausting slogs, and they are not fun for anybody, including the candidates involved. What we've seen in the history, you know, the legislature has tinkered with runoff rules uh, over the past 30 years, and it tends to bite parties in the butt. Uh, Democrats, when they were in charge, changing the rules a little bit, and sometimes their incumbents lose. Um, So there are all sorts of unintended consequences. One thing Ossoff and Warnock really benefited from was being able to register new voters uh, between the general and the runoff. Uh, They had until December 7th, not a ton of time, but my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the registration deadline for a runoff is now actually the day before a general election. So that makes it really hard um, to register new voters, and Ossoff and Warnock really benefited from all of these young people who turned 18 between November and December 7th. And when we're talking again about these close elections, stuff like that can really make a difference. It also cuts down on early voting um, during a, a runoff. So Democrats, of course, would argue that that makes their jobs harder.
2: Jerry, yeah. I have this question for you um, So one of the things the bill does to expedite uh, the runoffs is ask people to rank candidates who were voting uh, early. Um, Is is that signaling the the day of the Georgia runoff being over at some point? Because this whole runoff system, uh, I think many, much of the nation may look at it and say, why are you doing this?
3: No, that's. I just want to
1: jump in real. Let me jump in real quick before you, because I want to make sure our listeners understand what Kevin's asking. Rank voting will be for foreign and military voters only. This is not all of us here. This is a way to go get around a federal uh, requirement that Georgia have longer runoff periods to accommodate military and overseas voters. Go ahead, Terry.
3: No, that's exactly right. So ranked choice voting will be an option for, you know, for the overseas and military voters. And really what we have buried in this code is a pilot project to see how ranked choice voting goes. We will absolutely have more runoffs in Georgia elections. You know, The jungle primary is no more as, as of Senate Bill 202. So we're going to have more you know, each party primary for special elections. And we're going to have runoffs. And so this ranked choice really it's a pilot project we're going to get to see how it goes and i'm actually excited about having the option to see how this goes with the military and overseas ballots because i think it's going to be very interesting to see if it is something that we do move towards down the road
1: uh, the issue is going to be leo we now have four lawsuits challenging uh, aspects of the new election law and and certainly Uh, incorporated into them as as a question as to whether you can have rank choice voting for one segment of the Georgia electorate and have runoffs that will run on the schedule they traditionally do uh, for the rest of the electorate. And it's going to be up to a court to decide whether that is, in fact, legal.
4: Yeah, that's one of the most curious things for me. One, I think the, the fact that Seen in the past that we have extended um, the runoff dates for many reasons, whether it's weather or or problems at the precinct or whatever, Um, court filings have happened and they have uh, been allowed. Uh, But, you know, this issue of two ballots. Um, two different types of ballots for two different types of citizens, I think that's going to get challenged big time. As a matter of fact, I've engaged Nate Persili at the Stanford Elections Law Center um, to to talk with me on Thursday in Clubhouse to talk about that particular thing and whether or not that can hold up in court.
1: Um, I am sorry to say there are still a couple other things I'd really hope we could get to, but we have run out of time for this edition of Political Rewind. Uh, so, With the time I have remaining, I'll just say, Kevin Riley, thank you so much. Tamar Hallerman, uh, Terry Anulowitz, and Leo Smith, thank you for a good conversation. Um, I know people are still uncertain uh, about much of what this law does. I imagine it's going to take us until the elections next year before we get a much better sense of what's really happened and who will benefit. And you know what? Political Rewind will be around to help break all that down. Um, That's it for us today. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow. Till then, take care, stay healthy, of course, continue wearing your mask. And if you don't have a vaccine yet, now's as good a time as any to get it. See you all tomorrow.